Hello everyone and welcome to the Mobilize podcast. I am Alessio Bricca and I'm a postdoc in the Mobilize project of Southern Denmark. Our guest for this episode is Professor Eva Ross. She's also affiliated to University of Southern Denmark and to the Mobilize project as a member of the advisory board. Hello Eva and welcome to the Mobilize podcast. How are you? Hi, Alessio. Nice talking to you. I am fine. I think, um, of course, the pandemic is challenging, but it also offer, offers opportunities. Uh, so for me, you know, less commuting and less traveling has allowed for much more physical activity and spending time in the nature, which I truly enjoy. Thank you, Eva. I think that this is a really good start to our podcast. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Today, uh, I'll be discussing with Eva the role of exercise in osteoarthritis, but particularly how to implement the exercise in, in clinical practice. But before we get started, uh, uh, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, you know, I, I trained, or actually I, I was an athlete who got injured and therefore got in, interested in uh, musculoskeletal diseases and injuries. So I trained to become a physical therapist back in the late 1970s. That's a long time ago. Uh, and I started working with sports medicine, but I, I have a very curious mind and I, I constantly ask why, 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 and how, how, how. So I, I'm not sure how good of a physiotherapist I really was because I actually did a lot of single case studies with my patients, you know, and experimented with different um, treatments. Uh, so eventually I started doing research in parallel. And since 2000, I've done research only. And um, I grew up academically and was fostered academically at Department of Orthopedics at Lund University. And that has given me a mixed identity because I'm, I'm so used to work with medical doctors and uh, surgeons. Um, so I was, you know, the, the, the person who didn't really fit the norm because I was not an MD and I was not a man because most of them were men. So I guess that created a little bit of an identity as an underdog. And I think I've learned to use that identity to my benefit to be able to, to um, collaborate uh, with people that I maybe could not have done uh, if I belonged to one professional group. But, but I, I've learned to work across professional groups and that has been very, very rewarding for me. Well, thanks for sharing this with us. It's, a, it's quite a unique uh, adventure, I would say. And, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and do you think that uh, all of that uh, had an impact uh, on, on your research? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you've performed uh, many high quality studies. Uh, I've Googled you this morning and uh, at least three of them are getting closer and closer to have uh, 3000 citations, which is something uh, quite unique. Uh, um, and do you think that all of that experience helped you to, uh, to build such a successful career? Do you know, I think that, uh, I would say yes, that's the short answer. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the whole thing, you know, from uh, 
being an athlete and being resilient and know that you need to work hard to win and you learn to lose sometimes, but you also learn to never give up. That, that has been a very good uh, traits uh, for an academic career. And um, I think it was really good for me to work with a different profession because uh, you learn the language, you know what it's like. And I think it has really helped me to work across professions. And the most impactful work that we have done is actually uh, the result of uh, interprofessional collaboration, mostly between um, physiotherapists and orthopedic surgeons. So absolutely. And if you ask me what I'm most proud of, yeah. I would say, uh, first, uh, I, have a, I have a keen interest in making sure that the patient's uh, voice is heard. And I've done that by creating a lot of um, patient-reported outcomes. And uh, when I did that back in the 90s, that was something that was quite obscure, you know, and, and I got... I got very interesting feedbacks from editors, of, of especially surgical journals, when I wanted to publish patients' opinions about their knees, for example. It could be, I could get feedback like, you know, the knee is very complex. And although it is interesting to, to hear what the patient thinks, there, there is no way they can understand the complexity of the knee, you know, things like that. And today that has totally changed. And today patient-reported outcomes are uh, the primary outcome in uh, clinical research in this area. So I'm really proud of that, being part of that development. And also being uh, that we have published, uh, that we've been able to do high quality studies that have been published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, twice actually, in British Medical Journal, etc. As a researcher, that makes me very proud that we were able to pull that off because these are adventures that the first time it took us 10 years from we had the first thought until we got it published and now we're down at like five years <laughs> but it takes a long time and you need persistence but these days I think what makes me most proud is that I have been involved in initiatives um, where we make sure that the research evidence um, gets valued and implemented in clinical practice by reading your work, uh, it's definitely clear that uh, your research has focused on the patient primarily. And uh, I can also tell that uh, because you've been my supervisor during my PhD project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the patient has been always uh, at the center. Yeah. Um, Although you, LSU, you, you worked a lot with outcomes that were not on a patient level but more on an imaging level or a structural level or um, samples. And I think I asked you a million times, you know, why is this important and how can we interpret this? And I'm sure you got sick and tired of me many times. <laughs> no, definitely not. But as you know, the main driver was to provide uh, uh, useful information for patients. Mm -hmm. uh, although we looked at uh, uh, structural outcomes. But um, um, why have you focused so much on exercise and, and osteoarthritis? Oh, you know, that's, uh, that's also a long story. And I think mm. it goes back to actually the fact that I was an athlete uh, and I'm still uh, competing at a, a recreational level. 
And, and then you realize when you train really hard that training changes your body and you realize that this is a very powerful tool. And when I worked as a physical therapist, uh, exercise was my main tool. And I worked in sports medicine and we had these patients who had a major knee injury who tore their ACL and they came back maybe five years later and then they had other, they had pain and other symptoms and I had no idea what that was. And that started my curiosity about osteoarthritis. And then I met a wonderful professor, Stefan Lermander, who later became my PhD supervisor. And he made me understand that osteoarthritis was actually as sexy as sport medicine to, <laughs> to study. So I think that was the start of it. And, and um, we realized that we could exercise very hard with these people who had had a prior knee injury and in the clinic, we started to wonder, hmm, what about, can we do this with people with osteoarthritis? You know, this was back in the last century. And at that time, the, the paradigm was that if you have painful joints, you should rest, you should avoid uh, weight bearing, you should avoid loading the joint. That is what it was 20, 25 years ago. Uh, so together with um, uh, Eva Algeberg, who was my postdoc at the time, she's now a full professor at Lund University. We started discussing, you know, how can we, how can we, can we look at this? But uh, we had a big fear, you know, do we dare to exercise people with osteoarthritis? Can we injure their joints? Will it damage their joints if we do this? So we, we came up with what we thought was a very clever solution. So we, we said, well, let's take the group with the most severe osteoarthritis we can think of. That is those that are waitlisted to have their joints replaced. And then we thought if we potentially would dam damage their joints, uh, that doesn't matter because they're gonna replace the joint anyhow. And I think we also thought that if it works on this very severe group, it should also uh, work with those with less severe osteoarthritis. So we started and uh, recruited patients with, uh, that were waitlisted to have their knees replaced or their hips replaced. And we had them exercise. And what we found was that 95% of all exercise sessions were conducted with no more than acceptable pain. That was a huge surprise to us. So it was safe for them to exercise. And as the weeks went by, you know, the, the pain decreased, the patients loved it, and they could do more. So they could progress the exercise, they could do things they hadn't done before. And all this was very, very encouraging for us. And, and but we were, were very surprised when patients started to tell us that, you know, hmm, I'm not sure that I need the surgery anymore. That was really, really um, mind-blowing to us that exercise could be that powerful that it actually could change uh, the need for surgery and that was a start for a randomized control trial that we did uh, some 10 years later fantastic thanks for sharing with us this very interesting <laughs> story you're welcome <laughs> you mentioned about uh, neosarthritis uh, but could you tell any pain? But could you tell us a bit uh, how common is is that and what it is actually neosarthritis? Yeah, uh, 
<laughs> That's a really good question. I would say that has been debated for as long as I've done research in this area. And I think it is important to make the distinction between the disease osteoarthritis and the illness osteoarthritis. So the illness osteoarthritis, which is pain, functional limitations, symptoms, that is what is important to patients. And that is what drives patients to see, uh, seek medical care. And that is what drives the societal costs uh, for sick leave uh, and other um, also direct costs for treatment. And then we have the disease osteoarthritis, which back in the days was considered just and only a cartilage disease. Uh, so that would be um, decreased quality of the cartilage first. It would be loss of cartilage. But as time went by and, and research, there was more research performed in this area, it became obvious that it was actually a whole joint disease because it also affected the menisci, the ligaments, the synovia, the bone, and the muscles surrounding the joint. And these days, we actually consider osteoarthritis a whole person disease to include both the disease and the illness perspectives. So how common it is, that really depends on how you define what definition you use of osteoarthritis. But um, uh, about 30% of the adult population have common knee pain. And if you look at the illness, where you look at structural findings, cartilage loss, and you combine it uh, with having the pain, it's usually around 10, maybe 12% in a population that would have those symptoms. And usually we think about people that are from um, 40, 50 and older. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's very valuable. And uh, um, as you've mentioned before, um, research over the last two decades has really shaped the way we treat now people with neostarthritis. But do you think that the change in clinical practice um, is keeping up with the knowledge we gain from research? The short answer is no. Uh, it takes time to change. And uh, we are slowly, slowly turning the boat and eventually getting there, but it will take a long time. You know, usually in medicine, you would say that it, there is usually some 15 years uh, from evidence to that it is implemented in clinical practice. And it looks like it is about the same lag time in this area. How do you think we can bridge this gap? Oh, that's the $100 million question, Alessio. But, but I think that one thing that needs to be in place, first is the evidence. The evidence is there. And then is the knowledge. I think yeah, patients, ordinary people, clinicians, healthcare administrators and, and politicians need, we need to, uh, their knowledge needs to be increased and their awareness of that osteoarthritis is a disease. It's not a wear and tear thing that happens to everyone that gets older. And it is something, it is a disease that we can do something about. We can treat it successfully. So I think we need to increase the knowledge in that area. But then there is, there is the need for organizational changes. If you take Denmark as an example, it is the municipalities that are responsible for uh, providing uh, the exercise intervention, 
uh, for patients with osteoarthritis, but it is the regions who pay for surgery. You know, there is this discrepancy. Uh, and all these organizational issues, um, they look different in different healthcare systems. They are barriers uh, for implementing evidence-based care. And again, if we take Denmark as an example, you know, patients need to pay uh, partly themselves for having evidence-based care, which is exercise and patient education. But to see the GP to get a prescription of analgesics, that's free. And surgery is free as well. You know, so there are some political changes uh, needed as well if we want to implement, be successful in implementing evidence-based care. Yes, yeah, I completely agree. But uh, in Denmark and, and in other countries, uh, you together with uh, Soren which who is uh, the PI of the Mobilize project, uh, made a huge uh, uh, contribution to that uh, by creating the GLAL project. Um, could you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, yeah. So Soren, who was my PhD student at the time and is now a highly successful uh, professor and your boss, uh, he's, he's a very energetic and smart guy. And uh, together we started the GLAD project. And uh, the origin for that was really that we had been in discussions with the healthcare sector for many years about implementing evidence-based care. And this had already been done in Sweden. So the inspiration came from there. And after three years of, of meetings, uh, we, were basic, we basically understood that they thought this is a really good idea, but they couldn't figure out who should be responsible. You know, there were all these organizational issues and it would cost money. And there were so many barriers. And if there is something that the healthcare sector don't have is, is money and energy. So, and both are required to make a change. So we realized this is never going to happen. And then uh, Soren was young and energetic enough, and I was determined and frustrated enough. So we said, okay, let's, let's do it ourselves. So with the help and inspiration from Sweden, we put together at the GLAD uh, program. So we started teaching two-day courses at our university. The physiotherapist had to pay to take the course. And they then went home and they treated uh, patients in their own clinical practices according to the principles of the clinical guidelines because GLAD builds on the Danish clinical guidelines. And uh, the, the aim of GLAD is to help clinicians to implement clinical guidelines in clinical care. And they also commit to um, submit data, both patients and clinicians to the GLAD registry. So GLAD has three components, the courses, the treatment that is delivered, and the database where we collect uh, data to uh, look at the outcome. And that has been a very powerful tool when showing what a difference exercise can, and patient education can make for patients with osteoarthritis. Fabulous. And as you know, people with, uh, with neostarthritis uh, uh, often uh, present with uh, other conditions uh, such as hypertension, diabetes, depression. So they live with at least uh, two chronic conditions. 
and then that's what we call multimorbidity. In the GLAD program, uh, do you see people with osteoarthritis and other conditions responding the same as people only with uh, osteoarthritis? Yeah. First, uh, just as I say, other conditions are very common in the patients with osteoarthritis that we treat. And because of the registry, you know, I have very precise numbers on this. So I know that 62% of uh, the people with osteoarthritis who participate in GLAD, they have at least one comorbidity. The most common is hypertension, which about one third has. And heart disease and diabetes, about 7-8% have heart disease and diabetes. Those are the most common ones. And if we look at what is the outcome, we can see that, that having a comorbidity is associated with having a worse health status. So when they start the GLAD program, they are worse off. They have worse scores when we evaluate them in different ways. But what we can see is that they improve to a similar degree as patients without comorbidities in GLAD. So the improvement is similar between patients with comorbidities and patients without comorbidities, but they don't reach the same level because they started at a lower level, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it makes very much sense. And that's also very reassuring for patients with yes, uh, it is. multiple chronic conditions that they can actually improve as much as uh, people with uh, only one condition from exercise and education. Yeah, and actually I think that is really important because if you have cardiovascular disease, for example, or you have diabetes, you know, physical activity is, is part, of, um, part of the treatment uh, also for those uh, diseases. And uh, we know that having knee pain or hip pain, that is a barrier for physical activity. So if you can learn to exercise and be physically active with pain or with acceptable pain, that will be good also for the comorbidities that you have. Very good. That's a very powerful message. Why do you think that uh, people, you know, with uh, multiple chronic conditions uh, improve as much as people with uh, single chronic conditions? Because you would think that people very diseased uh, could, shouldn't maybe uh, exercise or they would improve less than people with only uh, single chronic conditions, maybe. Yeah. So, so this is not my line of research. So I will just speculate, and I'm sure that there are other people in your network who know a lot more about this than I do. But from my overall point of view, I would think that exercise is a really powerful tool. And there have been studies showing that you, if you exercise, if you have diabetes and you exercise really hard for a couple of hours a day, you can actually turn it around, you can get rid of your diabetes. So it is really powerful and it is good for most things, not only for, for the pain and functional limitations from osteoarthritis, but also to treat other and prevent other chronic diseases. So I would say exercise is powerful and it's good for most things, except for weight loss. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a few side effects. There are very few side effects. So, so really it is good for everyone. For people with osteoarthritis, both those with and without comorbidities. But of course, you always have to individualize the exercise to meet uh, the level of the individual that you uh, would like to start exercising. That is, of course, important. There is not one prescription that fits everyone. It needs to be individualized.
Fantastic. And I guess I agree with you that uh, this should be the trick. We are getting to the end of this podcast, but before we finish, I would like you to conclude with uh, some take-home messages for the patients and for researchers. Yeah, it is really simple. You should stay as fit and as slim as you can. And even if you are deconditioned and overweight, you know, little can do it. So whatever you do, if you used to sit in the sofa and watch TV, so instead of having, having your husband or your wife go and get something for you, go up and do it yourself. You know, little can do it. Everything is better than nothing. But of course, more is better. Uh, so that is good for your osteoarthritis, for your joints. And that is also good for your general health. So I think that is my absolute best advice for patients. And what research instead should do better in the future in this area of research? Well, I, I am a researcher, so I obviously think that we know too little still. So I think that large projects such as Mobilize, which you are part of, will help create the evidence that is needed uh, to, um, to make a difference in the future. But I'm not sure that it's really up to the researchers to improve the healthcare, you know, to... to um, make sure that the evidence gets out there because it's not really clear whose who's job that really is. But in the healthcare sector, I think there's really a need for a more holistic treatment perspective. And I think there is the need to upgrade the importance of exercise and physical activity or lifestyle factors as treatment in the healthcare sector. Because today there is a focus and many patients and many doctors prefer pills to, sing, uh, to treat single risk factors or single diseases, when exercise and physical activity actually can impact on many risk factors, such as hypertension, for example, for other chronic diseases, such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So I think there is, there is a need for this change and uh, that would include changes in the education to become a medical doctor. And it will also include I think financial incentives in the healthcare sector, how you get paid for prescribing different procedures. Because if you're paid more to do surgery, you will do surgery, that, that is the way it is. I think there are some uh, need for some major changes in the healthcare sector to upgrade the importance of exercise and physical activity as treatment. Fantastic, Eva. Thank you very much for joining me on this podcast and thank you all for listening. 